The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Good morning. Welcome to TBC. Merry Christmas. Um, we, are, we are taking a, uh, a break from our series in this Christmas season, our series in Mark, and so we're, we're going to take a look at the Christmas story over these weeks leading up to Christmas. And uh, so we're, we're going to begin uh, right at the beginning of that story in, in Luke chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Luke chapter 1 together. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well along in years. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will be brought back to the Lord, their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel answered, I am Gabriel and I stand in the presence of God. And I've been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. If you turn over the page uh, at verse 67, this is where Zechariah's tongue is loosened. He can speak again. And it says, His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his prophets of long ago. Let's come before God in prayer. Let's pray. So, Heavenly Father, thank you again for this Christmas season when we can have this punctuation mark in the year to remind us that you have acted and that you are going to act. Father, we thank you for sending your Son, Jesus. We thank you, God in the flesh, the man who is God. We thank you for coming for us for your glory. Father, we pray again that we would appreciate uh, this, this gospel, this good news, again, in a new way. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, you know, t- TV is, is different nowadays than way back when, when I was a boy. Um, when, when I was growing up as a kid in the 1980s, uh, a, a lot of the TV shows were set up like this. So, so you'd have, like each episode would have like its own, its own storyline, its, its own plot line. And, and the plot line, the story that was hatched at the beginning of that episode would be kind of finished and done with by the end of the episode. All the questions would be answered, all the uh, tensions resolved within that 
that 45-minute segment so that you could get up and walk away from the TV quite satisfied that the story was over. It was finished. It was closed. They were done. Uh, um, not only did each episode have its own individual uh, storyline, but the, the, there was something about the way that storyline, the plot line developed um, that was a little bit formulaic. Uh, so, so one of my f- favorite shows as a kid was The A-Team. Uh, some of you remember that. And, and every week, you know, the bad guys would be introduced. Then there would be a fist fight followed by a car chase, followed by the A-team being locked in a room somewhere with nothing but a stick of gum and a cigarette lighter, and, and they would build a, uh, a tank out of this or, or a, or a flamethrower, flame and they would defeat the bad guys. And then George Papad, with his cigar in, in mouth, would say, I love it when a plan comes together. You, you remember that. Same thing every week, right? Very, very formulaic. Now, I'm not saying TV shows today don't have that kind of a formula or, or, or that they don't have any formula or that they, the, the characters don't have their own catchphrases. They, they do. Um, but these days, there's a story arc. In other words, each individual episode is not like this standalone episode, this standalone story disconnected from all the rest. In fact, each episode is intricately connected in various ways and important ways to all the other episodes. So that when you, there's a story arc, right? So that when you get to the end of an episode, it's certainly not the end of a story. In fact, instead of answering all your questions, some episodes actually have raised more questions. And, and, and instead of resolving all the tensions in 45 minutes, some episodes, because of all the plot twists, surprising twists in the plot, uh, suddenly you have, they've raised, created more tensions that now seek their own, their own resolution. Right? So, so uh, some of the characters may have their, their own catchphrase. That, that's true as, as, as well. But even the characters grow and change and develop in surprising ways as we learn more of their backstory and we are left to wonder about their future. Um, Well, I want to suggest that these are actually two different ways of reading Scripture and two different ways of experiencing life. These are two different ways of reading Scripture and two different ways of experiencing life. If you were to read the Bible, let's say uh, the Old Testament, in, in the kind of older 1980s episodic fashion where each individual episode is its own story isolated from all the rest, then this can be quite a depressing exercise. Uh, right, right before um, Thanksgiving, the day before, I was doing dinner with some friends and, and, and two of them were speaking at me at the same time uh, and, and were saying that they really don't enjoy reading large tracts of, of the Old Testament. And I think one of the reasons why they, they, they don't enjoy doing it is because Quite often it goes like this. Uh, A new king comes to the throne. Turns out this king is evil. Evil king leads Israel astray. Death and destruction ensue. Another king comes to the throne. Turns out this king is evil. The king leads Israel astray. And and so, yeah, the individuals are different. But come on, we're talking about the same character, right? These are the same characters. And and sure, some of the details are a little different. But ultimately it's the same sin and death cycle. Sin and death cycle, right? And so uh, it, it can be a little bit of a, you know, there's, there's this kind of repetition, a bit of formulaic. There's, there's a sense in which, yeah, it's a brand new episode, but hey, it's the same old story. We've been here before. It, we've, Israel has been here before. It's like their story's got stuck. It's going nowhere. It's, their story is futureless. Well, that's the first thing that you should notice as you read this passage this morning. As you, as you look through the book of Luke, what you should be thinking to yourself is, wait a second, I feel like we've been here before, right? 
Um, so Luke quite intentionally begins, quite deliberately begins his, his gospel with uh, a childless couple, with uh, Zechariah and the priest and with his wife Elizabeth. Elizabeth is is old and she is a barren woman. Now, in that, in that culture, in that day and age, of course, it's not like that today, but back then, of course, a woman's identity was almost entirely wrapped up in childbearing. And so, in that particular situation, there would have been a lot of stigma and shame with it, and, and, she, would have, and she would have felt like her story had got stuck, like her story was going nowhere, like it, she was futureless. This, of course, is a very appropriate place to begin this narrative. Um, because, think of it like this. Elizabeth's Barrenness was, in a sense, a picture, a reflection of Israel's barrenness. Her hopelessness and helplessness was a picture of Israel's hopelessness and helplessness. Her picture of her story getting stuck was a picture of Israel's story getting stuck. Her futurelessness was Israel's futurelessness. Now, if you're thinking, wait, I think I've heard you say something like this before, that's because we've been here before, is what I'm trying to tell you, right? So, but only it wasn't with Elizabeth. Last time, it was with Hannah. If you reach back into some early memories of Israel, right at the beginning of the book of Samuel, you you have Hannah, who is also a barren woman. And she is weeping and she is bitter because she has no children. And so so Luke begins his narrative with a a barren couple. And right there, Samuel begins his narrative with a, a, a barren woman. And when we look at Hannah, we're also supposed to remember another childless couple, Abraham and Sarah, way back, really deep and early memories in, in, in the book of Genesis. At the beginning of the Bible, you have Abraham and you have Sarah, and again, they are childless. And so, if you're looking at this and you're thinking, yeah, this seems familiar, well, that's because it is. Right? Luke is saying, look, I'm going to point out some, some significant features of this situation, and as I do, you should be thinking to yourself, well, I've seen this before. Because as he holds up Elizabeth, you are meant to remember Hannah. And and as you look at Hannah, you are supposed to remember Sarah. And by holding these women up in front of us, we're supposed to remember the situations, the circumstances surrounding each of those women. Luke is deliberately evoking those moments, precisely those moments in Israel's history, where it seemed like their story had got stuck, where it was going nowhere, where it was barren, where it was futureless. And he's saying, we're here again, Israel. We're back here again. Some of the details are a little different, right? Um, This time it's not Pharaoh or Goliath or Nebuchadnezzar, but it is Caesar. This time it's not Egypt or the Philistines or Babylon, but this time it's Rome. This time it's not slavery, it's not war, it's not exile, but it is a brutal occupation. Sure, the details are different. Hey, it's a brand new episode, but it's the same old story. We're back here again. Israel is futureless, barren. Hopeless, and, and once again, he, he's, he's saying, we're, we're here again. And once again, Israel, you look like this old and barren woman with all the stigma and shame that was attached to it in their culture. Uh, you know, I've, I've said before that uh, if, if you and I were to, to uh, choose a, a, a woman to represent us, she, she would look something like one of these two. This is, of course, Lady Liberty, and she stands tall, and she's beautiful, and she holds that torch like a, a beacon of hope, a light in the darkness. She, she is self-confident, self-possessed, and, and, and she says this country has a hope, and this country has a future. 
And, and uh, on, on this side here is, is Lady uh, Britannia, and a shield in one hand and a trident in the other. And again, it's a picture of strength, of confidence, of fortitude, of courage. And uh, again, th- these are the kinds of women who we would choose to represent. They not only represent us. These women nurture us. These women and everything that comes with them. These, these women have, have nurtured self-confidence. They have raised us to believe in ourselves. These women have taught us uh, to, to uh, find our inner strengths, to be resourceful, to stand on our own two feet. Lady Liberty and Lady Britannia. Well, Luke does not begin his narrative with a Jewish version of either of these two ladies. He doesn't begin with a beautiful, strong woman who is confident, self-possessed. No, he doesn't begin there. Instead, he begins with an old and barren woman, and he says, you look like Elizabeth. Uh, I, I just want to stop and make a, a, an applicational point here because I, I believe that there's going to be, you know, there's, there's always this kind of little bit of pushback from our culture at this point uh, because of the, the, the way that, that I grew up and you grew up and the culture we grew up in, whether it was America or, or Britain or, or Western Europe or Canada, when in the West, in the Western culture that you and I grew up in, we would, we would tend to, to look at this sort of thing and say, this is just bad psychology. Right? This is bad psychology. This is going to create such a negative self-image. In, in fact, what, what this does is, can you imagine how damaging this book kind of thing was to Israel's national psyche? That's just terrible. I was at Barnes & Noble, and um, we, I, I was trying to do some work in there, but I, I, I got distracted, which honestly it doesn't take much, right? And, and so uh, I was distracted by a group of people who were doing their... their they're practicing their Toastmasters speeches. You know, Toastmasters, you go, you learn how to do public speaking and practice that. And, and so um, they were learning to, to they're practicing their, their speeches. And I was kind of interested at first because I was kind of intrigued by, by their technique. I wanted to see how other people go about this because you, you may not know this about me, but I, I do a bit of public speaking myself. And, and, and so uh, at first I'm listening for technique, but, but then I'm, I'm kind of intrigued by what they're actually saying, the content. So this one woman gets up and she starts to talk about this, uh, how, how important it is to have a positive outlook on life, to think positively. And she said, in order to do this, you have to be able to believe in your And and she said, and for me, God and the church helped me to do that. But but then she said, and this is where it gets really interesting, she she goes, but but for you it may not be God or the church. It could be being on a team and and having a good coach. Or or, or maybe you're in a class and you have a really good teacher. You see, in this woman's head, a a teacher and a class and 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 a team and a coach and the church and God, these were all interchangeable. God, his word, his people, these were just more tools in the larger toolbox of tools to to help prop up our self-esteem, our self-perception so that we can think positively and believe in ourselves. Now, she wasn't a teacher in the church or anything, but honestly, you don't have to go too far to, to, to find teachers who are saying this kind of thing. Uh, a few, it was about uh, four weeks ago, um, a group of us were uh, from TBC were up in Dallas at a leadership conference and uh, the, um, the, we got to hear from speakers from all across the country, it was a wide variety of speakers. And, and one of the speakers gets up and he starts to talk about this dream, this vision that he had of, of starting a church planting movement somewhere in the Midwest. Not, not a bad vision or idea. And so he'd kind of written it down on a, on a napkin and drawn a little diagram. And, but as he looked at it, he thought, wow, this is just too ambitious. This is, this is so grandiose. This is way beyond me. And so what he did is he, he took that, 
that napkin. He kept it, but he put it in his Bible and filed it away. And with that, he filed his dream, his vision away. And, uh, and, and so it, it was about four years later. He did nothing with it. And four years later, he's sitting down with a, a friend uh, who is he's not a believer, but he's a, a kind of a successful businessman and, and a very self-possessed, self-confident kind of guy. And, and this businessman, a friend of his, asked him, he said, so uh, tell me, if you could do anything, anything in the world, what would it be? I mean, if you could just do anything, no holes barred, what would, you, what would it be? And so reluctantly, he pulled out this napkin and he, he turned it to him and he, and he showed him and he said, this, this is what I'd do. And this, this, this friend of his, he, he looked at the napkin, he looked back at him, he looked back at the napkin, he, and he, he goes like this, he shrugs his shoulders, he goes, you can do that. Yeah, you can do it. <laughs> you can do that. And, and he said, and just feel the power of that, he said, he said that it was like someone reached inside him and turned a switch on. And he said, because this guy believed in him now, he said, I believed in me too. Now, a couple of things. First of all, I want you to know that I get that. I get it. I understand it. Sometimes I yearn for that because it kind of feeds something inside me. Feeds something inside me. I get it and I understand it. I understand the power of it. Not just in my head, but I feel it, right? I feel the power of that. I, I get it. I, I understand that. I also, uh, I also want you to, to know this. That is not what is on offer here. God, his word, his people, that, they are not there as tools in the toolbox to prop up your fragile and teetering ego. That's not what this is about. Now, I know we're encouraged by our culture to read scripture this way, to pull out these, these verses out of context, like, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, and we slap it on life as we go, right? And we stick it on our mugs and T-shirts. And I've even seen, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me at, 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 on the wall at different gyms. I can do all things through, through creatine which strengthens me. Come on, that's more honest, right? This is more, let's be honest. So, so this is... This is where our culture teaches us to read Scripture. It teaches us to mine Scripture for these great one-liners, these things that can become snappy sayings that we can turn into platitudes and slap on life as we go to prop up our teetering egos, our fragile egos, our self-esteem so we can think positively and believe in ourselves. The trouble is, when you start to actually read Scripture and you read it closely and you read it carefully, what you discover is that, yeah, Scripture does offer us all sorts of ways of seeing ourselves. The trouble is, quite often, it's not very nice. Right, this is, so, so, you know, a, a, few, a few weeks ago, you know, we, I was up here and we were talking about how there was that Ezekiel was shown, that valley of dry bones is a valley of death and cursing and uncleanness. And God says, you see this valley of dry bones? This is you, Israel. That's not very nice. And, and here we are again. And uh, there's this woman who has the stigma and shame of her society. She's a barren woman. And she is old and advancing years. And God says, this is you. You look like Elizabeth. Your situation looks like Elizabeth. You know, um, I just want to stop here and, and make a, an applicational point. Because I think, I think this is important that there's... There's, there's going to be some pushback from our culture on this sort of thing, from the culture that, that you and I grew up in, right? Whether it's, whether it's America or Canada or Britain or somewhere in Western Europe, in the Western world, right? The, the, the culture that you and I grew up in, uh, there's going to be some pushback. Because we, we would look at this and we'd say, well, that's just really bad psychology, right? This is really bad psychology. This is terrible. This is going to create a very negative self-image. Can you imagine how damaging this sort of thing was to Israel's national psyche? This is terrible. I was, um, 
I was in Barnes & Noble about uh, eight weeks ago, and I was uh, trying to do some work in there, but I, I, I got distracted, which you know, doesn't actually take much. But uh, I, I, started, I was distracted by a group of people who were practicing their, their Toastmasters speeches. And you know Toastmasters, where you go and you, you learn how to do public speaking and you practice that. And, and at first I was listening in because I, uh, I was intrigued by you know, how other people go about it. I wanted to see their, hear their technique, right? Because you may not know this about me, but I, I do a bit of public speaking from, from time to time myself. So, um, so I'm, I'm, listening, I'm listening in for technique, but then I get kind of intrigued by what she's, what she's actually saying. And, uh, and, and she starts to talk about, um, about how important it is to be very positive, to have a positive, to think positively. And in order to do that, she said, you've got to believe in yourself. And, and, she, and she said that one of the things that helps her to do that is, is church and, and God, she said. But she said, and this is where it gets interesting, she goes, you know, it, for you it may not be church or God. It, it, actually, for you, it, perhaps, it's, um, perhaps it's being part of a team and having a great coach. Or, or perhaps it's being in a class and having a great teacher. For her, a class and a teacher, a coach and a team, and her, and, uh, her church and God... These things are all interchangeable. In, in her head, God, his word, his people, these are just tools in a larger toolbox of other tools to prop up her self-esteem, to help her believe in herself and to think positively. Now, she wasn't a teacher in the church or anything, but hey, you don't have to go very far to, to find teachers in the church saying this sort of, sort of stuff. Uh, what was it, about four weeks ago, there was a group of us up in Dallas at a, at a leadership conference there. We got to, they have speakers come in from all over the country. We got to hear a, a, a bunch of diff, very different speakers. Well, one of the speakers gets up, and, and he starts to uh, tell this uh, story about how he had this dream, this vision, to start not just plant a single church, but start a church planting movement uh, in this large area up somewhere in the, in the Midwest. And, um, and he drew a little diagram, and he wrote it down on a napkin, and and as he looked at it, he thought, wow, this is just so grandiose. You know, this is huge. This is way beyond me. I can't do this. And so he, he kind of kept that napkin, but he filed it away. He put, he put it in his Bible, and as he filed it away, he filed that dream away, that, that, that ambition. Did nothing with it for about four years. And, and then one day, he's, he's, uh, he's, he's sat with a friend uh, who, who's not a believer or anything, but he's a successful businessman and, and a very self-possessed, self-confident kind of guy. And, and, and this businessman friend of him, was, he, he asked him, he says, if you could do, I love this question, if you could do anything you wanted in the entire world, what, what would it be? If you could do anything, what's the big idea? What would, what's the vision? So reluctantly, he pulls out this napkin from his Bible and he puts it in front of his, uh, his friend. And he says this, this is, this, is what I would, this is what I would do. And his friend looks at it, and he looks at the, his, his friend, and he looks back at the napkin, and he, and he shrugs, and he goes like this, he shrugs his shoulders, and he goes, you can do that. Yeah, you can do it. <laughs> you can do that. And you just feel the power in that. You know what he said? He said it was like someone reaching inside, just reached inside of him and turned on the switch. It's like he said, this guy was believing me and, and believing in me, and now I believed in me too. Now, I want you to know that I get that. I get that. Sometimes I yearn for that because it feeds something in me. Yeah, it feeds something in me. I get it and I understand the power of that, not just in my head, but I feel it, right? I feel the power of that. I understand it. I get it. I want you to know that. I get it. I also want you to know that that is not what is on offer here. God, his word, his people, these are not tools in the toolbox to prop up your fragile and teetering ego. That's not what this is about. Now, I know that, that, that uh, our culture will teach us to read Scripture this way, and they love to pull out these, these verses, right? 
out of context, right? Which, like, uh, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And we slap it on life as we go, right? We slap it on mugs, and we'd love to turn it into these one-liners, and, and, and we put it on T-shirts. And, and, and I've even seen, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me on, on the wall at different gyms, right? I can do all things through the creatine which strengthens me. I buy that. And let's be honest, let's be, but, but our culture, right, our culture teaches us to read the Bible this way, to mine the scriptures for these great one-liners, these pithy sayings which we can slap on life as we go, to prop up our self-esteem so that we can think positively and feel great about ourselves, so that we can believe in ourselves. But the trouble is, the problem is, as you begin to read, actually read scripture, and you read it carefully, and you read it closely, what you discover is, yeah, scripture does offer us all sorts of ways of looking at ourselves. Trouble is, a lot of the time, it's not very nice. Right? This, this, this is the problem. So a few weeks ago, you remember, we were talking about that this Ezekiel is shown this valley of dry bones, a valley of death and cursing and uncleanness. And God says, you see this valley of dry bones? This is you, Israel. It's not very nice. And, and then here we are again this week in, in, in Luke. And, and, and Luke says, look, here's this, this barren woman advanced in years. And he says, this is you, Israel. Your story's got stuck. It's going nowhere. You're futureless. So, so before we, we just kind of reject this wholesale as just only too much bad psychology and that's just too negative and that's not good for my self-esteem, before we do that, please just, just wrestle for this, with this imagery that Luke offers us here for just a, a, a little longer. S- step into their reality for a moment. Step out of your Step into their reality for a moment. Imagine that you have seen a friend, a relative, uh, a, a con- fellow countryman, just, just hanging from a cross, nailed to a cross, bleeding out, slowly dying, his lungs filling up with fluid, and you just want to bring them down so that you can comfort them, so that they can die, soothe them, and they can die in peace. But you can't because there are centurions and there are Roman soldiers everywhere overseeing this barbaric event. And I'm not talking about Jesus and the two guys who were crucified with him. You know, I think sometimes, you know, we, we do forget that, that sometimes we think that the only three people who were crucified with long before Jesus was ever crucified, there were thousands, literally thousands of Jews who were crucified, nailed to crosses, tortured to death that way. Now, you've seen this. You've seen a family member, a friend, a countryman going through this. Yay, believe in yourself. You can do it. Well, that's a philosophy for life, right? And, 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 then, and then because you've seen this, you look inside your own heart and you see that your own heart is filling up to overflowing with, first of all, fear, but then it turns into hatred and then a thirst for vengeance, a bloodlust. Yay, believe in yourself. You can do it. Well, that's a, that's a philosophy for life, right? And, and then, you know, a friend of mine was, uh, was in India for the very first time. He visited India and he, and he goes, on one of those days, he goes into the slums in Delhi. And he saw things there that he'd never seen before. And, in the, and, and that night, he can't get those things out of his head, the pictures, the images out of his head of what he'd seen that day in the slums. And so that night, in his hotel room in India, three in the morning, he's awake and he is bawling. He is crying like a baby. Yay, believe in yourself. You can do it. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. He knew at that. He told me, he said he knew at that moment all of that thinking was washed away. It was gone. Time for something different. Another friend out in Rwanda saw the remains of genocide. Yay, believe in yourself. You can do it. Maybe you don't have to go to Rwanda. 
or India or, uh, or, or first century Israel. Maybe all you need to do is look inside yourself. And some of you will get this and some of you won't. But some of you will get it and you'll go, yeah, I know what you mean. Thankfully, at this point, Luke doesn't reach for Western self-help. He reaches instead for Jewish tragedy. Jewish tragedy, which is a far richer resource and is written into, woven into Jewish history. And so he pushes this point a little further. He, he pushes it a little further he, he, in, the, in this direction. He, he, he says that uh, Elizabeth was barren. They were, she was childless. But he also says that uh, Zechariah was a priest in the temple. He was serving as a priest before God. Well, that's all right. Then that's good, isn't it? Well, what's wrong with that? He was serving in the temple. So, well, he was serving as a priest before God. Yeah, and your point is? The point is, everyone knew that God wasn't there, that he had not returned to his temple. There was this huge question mark hovering over the temple. Can you imagine showing up to TBC as you drove up into the parking lot and you saw this big question mark hanging over uh, our church building? This is what it was like. This is a question that had plagued Israel for centuries. Where is God? Why has he not returned to us? You know how the Old Testament ends? Um, we're in the New Testament this morning, but, but if you, the Old Testament ends with the book of Malachi, with the, with the prophet Malachi. And in, in Malachi's day, Israel was wrestling with this question, where is God? We've built the temple, the temple had been destroyed, but we've rebuilt it, but God is nowhere to be seen. He has not returned to us. Where is God? What's going on? And, and a lot of people back then were actually saying things like, well, maybe there's no story. Maybe there never was any story, or if there is a story, then, then maybe the story's over. God's done with us. So let's just do what we want. That, that you can go back and read Malachi at some point. Um, but that's the story. That's the question that was plaguing Israel all the way from the old, end of the Old Testament, all the way through, all the way through to that very moment, that very day, when Zechariah the priest, the husband of Elizabeth, stepped into that temple. And you know what he saw there? Nothing. It was empty and it was barren, as empty and barren as Elizabeth's barren womb. And so here you have this couple Elizabeth and Zechariah, that her barrenness and the temple's barrenness in which he served, pictures of Israel's barrenness, pictures of Israel's futurelessness, that their, their story was going nowhere, their story had got stuck. And so it was that day that they drew lots, as was their custom for the priest to do, and, and uh, it fell to Zechariah. So he, he, he's going to wander off, he wanders off into the temple to burn incense before the altar of incense as part of their worship. And uh, everyone else who had come to worship, much like you have this morning, the crowd was, was outside and they just waited for him. And they waited. And it started to get a little bit awkward actually. And, and then, the, then, it, then it started to worry, well, what's happened to this guy? Well, he's an old guy. You know, maybe he's keeled over and you know, had a heart attack. Who knows? What's, what's going on? And, and so inside the temple, an angel has appeared to Zechariah. And, uh, and we're, we're told that when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. This is always the response whenever an angel, an, angel, an angelic being appears to someone. There's always this fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. Of course he's incredulous. He's like, well, what are you talking about? I am old, she's old, we're well past, we've always been childless, we're well past childbearing years. What are you talking about? Are you sh- how, how do I know this is going to happen? 
And the angel's response is interesting. He says, I am Gabriel and I stand in the presence of God and I've been sent to... You don't believe me? Because you've not believed me, you're going to be silent. You will be speechless. You won't be able to speak until the day your son is born. Can you imagine not being able to speak for nine months or so? He's here. And so by time he emerges, Zechariah emerges from the temple... He's speechless, literally speechless, and he can only sign to them and try and explain what's going on. They're guessing, as he see, has he had a vision? He's had some sort of vision, or he's seen an angel or something. And so he is speechless right up until the day his son is born. And as soon as he names him John, his tongue is loosened and he can speak again. Now, imagine not being able to speak for nine months. That's nine months he's had to think through what he's going to say next. We, 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 we don't normally have the luxury of thinking that time to think through what we're going to say next. If we did, we would avoid a lot of trouble in our lives, right? Right? This is true. So, but, so he's had nine months to think through what he's going to say next. So this, these next few words, these are very significant, and they're deliberate, and they're on purpose. And so with nine months of, to have to think about this, and under the, the influence of the Spirit, this is what he says. He says, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said to his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. He's had nine months to think about this. And the first thing he wants to do, quite deliberately, is he wants to place this event, his life, his wife's life, his son's life, in fact his community's life, Israel's life, right in the stream, right in the flow of an ongoing narrative. And he points to the story arc. Uh, he, he wants people to know that this is not just some random, odd event This is not just some episode disconnected from all the other episodes, but intricately connected in very important ways to all of the other episodes. And and so, uh, how does he do this? He he points, first of all, he he talks about David, right? Which was, of course, the king who was anointed by Samuel, who was the son of who? The son of the once barren Hannah. We've already mentioned her. And then he talks about Father Abraham, the, the, the... the great a patriarch who was the husband of who? The husband of the once barren Sarah. We've mentioned her as well. He talks about David. He talks about Abraham. He talks about the prophets of long ago. He talks about this oath and he talks about this covenant. He is uh, situating himself and his community right in the center of this overarching, this ongoing story, the flow of this narrative, the story that God is telling. This is what's known as uh, eschatological thinking. Now, contrary to some people's opinions, I don't actually use technical theological jargon from the pulpit very often. Very rare. In fact, you can go back and check the record. It's true. Uh, and I think that's important. Why use jargon when we don't need to, right? Um, but I'm encouraged to this morning because a, a, a friend of mine, Chase Bowers, uh, was uh, up here preaching a, a couple of months ago, and, and he started using some technical theological and, and philosophical uh, jargon. And, and he stands up here and he talks about hermeneutics of suspicion. Hands up, who knows what hermeneutics of suspicion is? Right, yeah, one of you, and, and, and you've got your PhD, no doubt, right? So, so, so the, he, he, starts to, he mentions it twice. He starts talking about a hermeneutics of sus, suspicion, right? And, and I, so afterwards, I'm, I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. I go, you've got to be kidding me. I'm like, ha, ha. I could never get away with that. And, and, and Chase, yeah, yeah, you know it. And, and so Chase goes to me, he, he goes, he says, uh, yeah, well, uh, Stephen, you, you just don't have an East Texas drawl. And, and this, this, is what he, this is what he tells me. So, um, 
So forgive me if I can't do as good of an impression of, of Chase this morning as he did of me a couple of weeks ago, but, uh, but here, here goes. What we're talking about here is eschatology or eschatological uh, thinking, right? This, this, is, this is what we're... Woo! <laughs> so my Texas accent is getting better. This is good. Uh, this is good. And, and, and basically it's the idea that history... Is, is not just a meaningless repetition of uh, events, each episode just a formulaic rehash of the last, but with no meaningful connection or continuity between them. It's the way of reading scripture and experiencing life, not just as a series of random events, but as part of an ongoing story that God is telling, which is unfolding even as we speak. This is what Zechariah is doing. He's placing it right into that eschatological reality of God. Zechariah understood that this surprising birth was more than just a private family event. Um, he has quite deliberately, we, we've, we've entitled this series Surprises, by the way, and, and this is a surprise not just for Zechariah, not just for Elizabeth. This is a surprise for all of Israel. This, is, this birth concerns the entire community, their past, their present, and their future. The birth of John is an assertion that Israel's future and Israel's story, like Elizabeth's womb, has just been reopened. They've just been given another chapter. They've just been given a future. Here's a question. Do you see your life, as Zechariah did, situated in the life of God's people and in the flow of an ongoing narrative? Do, do you see your life as Zechariah did, situated in, in the broader community of God's people and that community in the flow of an ongoing narrative? And if you do, in, in what ways does your life point to that story arc? How, how does your life point to that, that story arc? You, you might say, well, wait a second. <laughs> when, I'm not Zechariah. This is not, when, I'm not uh, Elizabeth, we're not raising John the Baptist, because well, that's who this is, right? John becomes John the Baptist. He's the forerunner to the Messiah. He's a voice in the wilderness preparing the way for the Lord. How, he, we're not preparing the way for Jesus. How can you ask me to see myself in the flow of that ongoing narrative the way they did? But here's the thing. In, in verse 6, we're, we're, we're told that long before this birth, Elizabeth and Zechariah were obedient and blameless before God. In other words, with or without this birth or the promise of a birth, Zechariah and Elizabeth pointed with their lives to the story arc of God's eschatological uh, reality long before this birth and these words. And And this is, I believe, what God's people have always done through the centuries as they have proclaimed the gospel. One author describes it this way. He says, in the 4th century, some Christian monks were sent out to establish hospitals in every major city in Europe and then the world. It's not that other cultures had never had a hospital or two before, but that is how the concept of the hospital spread around the world. Today, if you go to the bush somewhere in Africa, often the only hospital for miles around is a church hospital. Nursing care was revolutionized by Florence Nightingale, the Lady of the Lamp. And when you read her diary... She was driven and obsessed by Jesus' words. 
Education and literacy were made available not just to the elites, but to everyone through the church. The greatest research institutions like Harvard and Yale, Oxford and Cambridge, and all the other universities that ensued were started as a group of theological colleges. The slave trade, as it was then, was closed down thanks to the tireless efforts of William Wilberforce and his associates, again, Jesus followers. The slave trade today is being fought by the same people, the Jesus followers. And as a Buddhist friend actually pointed out to my sister once, the Red Cross and all the world's largest aid and relief agencies were all started by Jesus followers. Sometimes I like to ask my atheist friends, right, who... who, um, who by default are saying, well, no, life is just a series of random events. There's no story arc. It's going nowhere. I like to ask them, say, well, imagine if we lived in a world where none of those things I just mentioned had happened. You know, you shut down all the hospitals, you know, get, get, get rid of Scott and White, no more hospitals anywhere. Get rid of modern nursing care. What do we need that for? Um, shut down education, all the major research universities and everything that flowed out of that. Shut down the schools and don't think to yourself, well, we'll just homeschool because you'd be illiterate too, so you wouldn't be able to do that either, right? Nothing to teach. And, and you shut down all the schooling, the education, literacy just plummets, right? And, and, and imagine, imagine if, if, if uh, we, we reintroduce slavery and segregation and, and, and all the... Do you want to live in that world? Is that the world you want? And of course, the answer is always, no, of course not. That's backwards. It's the dark ages. Why would I want to do that? And, and the response is always, well, you see, as you, as you imagine that world, you're imagining a world where everyone thinks like you. There is no God. There is no story arc. There's no story arc. It's all going nowhere. It's just a meaningless one set of events after another. These are people, the, the people who did all that, these are people who were gripped by the story God is telling and pointed with their lives to that unfolding reality, declaring to the world, often in the face of great evil, of darkness, of incredible ignorance, declaring with every act of love and mercy and kindness and generosity that God has acted and God will act again. So again, as you see your life as part of a broader community, and do you see that community in the, in the, in the greater story art, the story that God is, is telling? And, and if you do, how, how does your life as part of that community point to that unfolding eschatological reality? I, I'd like to... Uh, close with a, a few verses from Malachi. It was a time when the, the, the end of the Old Testament is a cliffhanger. Everyone's wondering, is there a story at all? Maybe there's no story. Maybe God, there was a story. God is done with us. And this is speaking into that angst, the question mark over the temple. Malachi says this. God says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. In other words, saying one day that question mark over the temple will be wiped away. And then then in Luke, Zechariah says, And you, my child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. Malachi says, God is going to act. Luke says, or Zechariah says in Luke, God has acted. Malachi says, God is going to send his messenger ahead of himself to prepare the way for the Lord. And... And Zechariah holds his son John for the first time in his arms and he says, the messenger is here. The story may have seemed to have got stuck at various places and and certainly we can get very myopic and very kind of um, tunnel vision sometimes and short-sighted and sometimes we can only kind of see this episode that's right in front of us. But as one year rolls into another, the Christmas season is that part of the calendar year that, that reminds us again that God has acted and God will act. It's a promise that God has acted and it's a promise that God will act. It's a sign that God has acted, God has acted decisively 
in Jesus Christ. And of course, this week we've looked at the uh, birth announcement of John the Baptist. Well, that's how the story begins, right? That's how Christmas begins. But, but uh, in the weeks as we lead up to Christmas, we'll, we'll be looking at the uh, birth announcement of Jesus himself. Well, I, I have to end in good 1980s TV, badly made TV fashion. In the, in the 1980s, TV shows, when they found themselves with a story much larger than they could possibly fit into a single episode, they used a, a simple device at the end of the show to, to let you know that the story was far from over. A device which I'm going to use now, if that's okay with you, that is to say, to be continued, dot, dot, dot. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that life is not just a series of, um, of, random, of random events, a formulaic rehash of, of the last episode with no meaningful continuity or connection. Thank you for, for people like Elizabeth and for Zechariah, people who, who, despite their own barrenness and the barrenness of their nation, they were obedient to you and with their lives long before the promise of, of new life and new birth, with their lives they pointed to that story arc. Father, would you help us to read scripture and experience life in the flow of the story that you are telling? And would we with our lives as a community together, as Temple Bible Church, point to that unfolding story, even as we speak in Jesus' name. Amen. And we're dismissed.